Last Sunday, we looked at Jesus' warning to his disciples when they go into the world to preach the gospel and bear fruit after his ascension. They will encounter hatred and persecution along the way, just as Jesus himself encountered hatred and persecution during his ministry. And the Lord basically told them, don't be surprised when these things happen to you, when people hate you, when people persecute you. Don't be surprised by that, but rather remember that it happened to me first. Remember that that's exactly what they did to me. So don't be surprised. In the next section, Jesus describes how the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will minister to them in his physical absence, after his departure, after he returns to heaven. And of course, he's still presenting to them the idea of going and bearing fruit in the persecution. So so really what he's telling them is that this is how the Spirit's going to minister to you in the midst of that great hatred and difficulty. And Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit all the way up to the middle of chapter 16. So we're going to actually cross over today in our, in our text, as you can see up there, we're going to already cross over and go into 16, go up to verse 4. And then after that, we'll talk about more things that the Holy Spirit does in his ministry. So in any case, please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 15. We will be looking at verses 26 of that chapter all the way up to verse 4 of 16. It's one consistent bit of teaching here. We didn't have chapters and titles back in the old days. We've divided that up for for our benefit of study and reading, but Jesus is just continuing to speak to them and continuing to say these things. And I'm going to present to you four points today from the text. So I'd like to pray and then we can get to work. Gracious Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves now and ask that you open our eyes to the truth, that you open our ears to the truth, that you open our hearts to the truth that you pour the truth into us through the Holy Spirit, sanctify us, and save those who have yet to come to know Christ in a saving way. May you be glorified through all that is said in this moment, as well as this entire morning. We love you and and pray in Jesus' mighty, matchless name. Amen. Let's take a look at our first point. Pretty simple, straightforward presentation today for you. Number one, The Holy Spirit will teach the disciples, teach them the gospel. We see this in verse 26. Jesus, as he's continuing to walk with them on the way to Gethsemane, he says this to them next, after talking about the hatred and persecution they will experience, he says, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now up to this point, Jesus has been the disciples' teacher, their primary teacher, their primary influencer. They've been walking with him for three years, and he has taught them the gospel. He has taught them how to pray. He has taught them how to do ministry, how to witness to others, and he has taught them how to love one another. And we saw a great example of that in chapter 13, where he washed their feet. And here, Jesus basically reminds them as they're walking, and as their hearts are even more heavy and crushed right now, after learning that they're going to be hated and despised as he was, you know that they were insanely bothered right now. Here, he simply reminds them of a promise that he had made to them earlier that evening in the upper room, right, during the Last Supper. This is all on the same night. And that promise is the promise of the paraclete. The promise of the Holy Spirit. We saw that in chapter 14, verse 16, and in verse 26. 
the paraclete is the helper or the Holy Spirit. That is a, a Greek word for, uh, it actually is a legal term as I uh, expounded that for you when we were in chapter 14. It means advocate, but it is a specific reference to the Holy Spirit. So he's saying when the helper, the Holy Spirit comes, dot, dot, dot. After the ascension, Jesus will send him, the paraclete, the helper, to the disciples, not as a replacement teacher, not as a replacement for Jesus Christ, but as another or additional teacher who will remain with them while they are physically separated from the Lord. He goes to heaven, he sends the helper, the Holy Spirit, to come and minister to them in Jesus' steed, but not as a replacement. I like how A.W. Pink put it. He said, the Holy Spirit would further Christ's interests and be unto the disciples, only in another way, all that Christ would have been unto them them had he remained on earth. So it's a, the Spirit is like a replacement, but not really, because if you say he's a replacement, then Christ has nothing in them or with them any longer, and that is not true. So he sends the Spirit in his place as an additional teacher. That's what he's saying to them here. He says that the Holy Spirit, the Helper, will come, and he will bear witness about me, about Jesus, which has to do with teaching the disciples about Jesus and leading them into a clearer understanding of the gospel. And this is absolutely necessary for them because their understanding of the gospel was very, very cloudy at this juncture. They believed in Jesus as the Christ, as Messiah, but they did not yet understand why he had to die, why he had to be buried, why he had to rise from the grave why he had to essentially return or ascend and go back to heaven. They didn't understand that. They understood he's the Christ. They understood he's, 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 the, he's the Messiah because they saw his works. They saw his power. They listened to his sermons. The Holy Spirit testified to them in a sense. They got that. But when it came to the nuts and bolts of the gospel, they were like, why do you have to? Die? Whenever he talked about dying, they were like, well, we'll try to prevent that. Well, no, you don't understand. I must die. Get behind me, Satan. So they didn't understand aspects of the gospel, and, and, and it's because, like most Jews, they held a conqueror view of Messiah, and they had absolutely no concept of him also being a suffering servant. You know, like passages in Isaiah 53, which the Jews pretty much just removed from Scripture. So they had this view that when Jesus talked about leaving, they were like, why are you leaving? You're supposed to conquer all our enemies and be our Messiah from here on out. They didn't understand. They didn't understand he had to come as a suffering servant and die for sin. This is something they could not get their minds around. So the Holy Spirit is basically going to teach them these truths and help them understand to a, a, come to a fuller knowledge of who Christ is and why he came. And, and so that they can see him as a conqueror and as a sufferer. So they can see him as both. Now this is the second time in the farewell discourse where Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. You see it there in the text, the Spirit of truth. The first time we see it is in chapter 14, verse 17. And this is very interesting that he uses this title for the helper, for the paraclete, for the Holy Spirit. This particular title seems to refer to the Holy Spirit's unique roles as revealer of divine truth. 1 Corinthians 2.14, right? All divine truth is spiritual truth, and it is spiritually discerned apart from the Holy Spirit, him revealing it to dead sinners. There's no way to comprehend it. So this 
title, I think, points to him as the revealer of divine truth, as well as the inspirer of the human agents who will speak or who did speak on God's behalf. 2 Peter 1.21, the prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit, right, as they presented the truth to their hearers, and, and as well as the inspirer uh, that, that speaks, uh, that for the human agents that speak on God's behalf, but also for those special guys who actually recorded the Word of God on the pages of Scripture. And what does it say in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed, and the Holy Spirit is the agent who breathes that Scripture and thus it gets recorded. So I think that as the spirit of truth, we want to think of the Holy Spirit as the revealer of divine truth and as the inspirer of those who speak it and those who wrote it down. That's how you want to think of it. So that's what Jesus is saying. Now, it would appear that, and this is an interesting side point, it would appear that the breakthrough moment in the disciples' understanding of the gospel came not on the day of Pentecost, like some suggest, but about 10 days earlier on the day of Ascension. Typically, we think of, well, okay, when the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, that's where it finally clicked, and that's where they finally got it, and then we see the church birthed through the Holy Spirit's ministry on that day, and and everything just just takes off really, really quick. I, I don't think that's the moment where the disciples actually gained the knowledge that Jesus wanted them to have. I think it happened on the day of ascension. Just prior to his supernatural exit, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He walks them through the gospel. It's very similar to what he did to those disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus. He he takes the scriptures and unpacks them and uses the scripture to point to him and to illustrate how he had to come to suffer and die for us and everything. This is what he did for them on the day of ascension, just before he goes up into heaven. And not only did he reveal the gospel to them at a level that they had not yet comprehended, he also commanded that they stay in Jerusalem until they be clothed with power from on high, a.k.a. when the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven, comes upon you, that's where you'll have the power. So, You want to think of it like this. On the day of ascension, they're given gospel knowledge, but on the day of Pentecost, they're given the power and the spirit to take it out to the world. That's the way I think the order works. Now, how did Jesus open their minds and give them clear understanding of the gospel there on the high mountain there at at the ascension? How does he accomplish this? Well, obviously, he accomplished it through the spirit of truth, who is the revealer of truth. So so somehow in that moment, they don't understand. He opens their minds, and I think he's using the Holy Spirit. Who is the opener of our minds? Literally, right? He illuminates. Jesus is working in partnership with the Holy Spirit to accomplish this for them in that very moment. He is the revealer. The, the, The Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, is the revealer of divine truth at all times. He is always the revealer. He always has been the revealer throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament. He is the discerner of spiritual truth, Scripture teaches. Without his help, no one comes to a knowledge of the things of God. If Jesus and the Holy Spirit don't open their minds on the day of ascension, they remain in the ignorance, still can't get their mind around why he had to die, even though he's already done all of that. They can't figure it out. So the Spirit performs this supernatural work for them. 
So again, on the, on the day of ascension, they're given the knowledge. Now, that doesn't mean they had all knowledge. They still have to grow in their fear and admonition of the Lord. They still have to, to grow in, their, in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. The Spirit would assist them in that. He's still unpacking truth for them. He's still sanctifying them. But the gospel clicked on the day of ascension, finally, for them. And then they gained the power and the Spirit to go, the Holy Spirit and the power to go on the day of Pentecost. That's, I think, the right order. Now, later on, the same Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, would inspire some of these very same disciples and a handful of others, not in this group, who certainly had the qualifications, according to God, to actually record Scripture. Not all of these disciples, the 11 who were walking with Jesus here, wrote Scripture, or were they human agents in that? Only a handful, and there was a handful of others from the outside that did, like Luke the doctor and Mark, who was basically Peter's scribe. So the Holy Spirit's not only going to teach them, but he's actually going to work through them and inspire the Scripture itself to come through these human agents. That's what the Spirit of truth does. He reveals and he inspires and works through them as they record. Now, if we have a basic understanding of the gospel, and believe it, of course, if we have an elementary understanding of the gospel, we understand that Jesus came to live for our righteousness, die for our sin, be buried, to settle our accounts, rise from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for us. You know, just I sound like an auctioneer. But you put it out there. If we understand that Jesus came to die for sinners, the basic, the reason why we understand that, and if we believe it equally, is because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, has revealed that to us, has regenerated our hearts and revealed those truths to us, enabling us to thus believe it understand it, comprehend it, and even share it with others. So, so if we have even an elementary understanding of the gospel, that is evidence that the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, has worked in us and continues to work in us because His work literally does not end. We have the Spirit of truth. He has already opened our minds and revealed the gospel to us if we get it. Now, I'm not talking about having more degrees than Fahrenheit. You know, you're a, a scholar. You're like R.C. Sproul. Yeah, absolutely. The Spirit of truth revealed all of that to him. I'm saying, even if you have a tiny little understanding, like when a person is first born again, they don't understand the doctrine of election or predestination. Like, what's predestination? What is that? Does that mean I need to go somewhere in advance? They have no idea. Even the tiniest little understanding of the gospel has been imparted by the Spirit of truth. If we are growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? Second. Peter 3.18, it is because the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, is teaching us. He's always teaching us. Even through circumstances and examples, he applies the truth and reveals truth to us at times. He does it when we open our Bibles and read. He does it when we, when we pray. He is always teaching his people. He's always teaching the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is like his primary thing to do. And, and I wonder if the disciples were thinking, well, once you leave, and, and we still got questions, we're not sure about things, who's going to teach us? The helper whom I will send to you from the Father, he's going to become your teacher. He's going to become your instructor. Well, who's going to lead us? He's going to become your leader. He will guide you. I recall in the book of Acts, there's a passage where Paul says he was prohibited from the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, from entering into a particular province, Roman province. Why, why was he prohibited? Because the Holy Spirit didn't want him to go there, and the Holy Spirit redirected him to go somewhere else. What does that tell us? He's not only our teacher, he is the one who leads us, takes us from point A to point B. 
So, but for the most part here, Jesus is saying, I'm leaving, I've been your teacher, you'll still have a teacher. In fact, in the next chapter, chapter 16, he says it's totally advantageous that I leave and he come, because he's going to be able to do more with you than I could have, because you guys are going to be scattered and he can minister to you all over the place. Me in a physical form, I can only be at one place at a time. I mean, there's just a a number of benefits to us having the Spirit. It's, It's better actually for the saint to not walk alongside of Jesus in life, but to have the Holy Spirit. If, if Bruce is walking alongside of Jesus, that's wonderful. Bruce is super thrilled. But Jesus isn't walking along my side. He'd only be in one place at a time physically. He goes to heaven. He sends the Spirit. The Spirit's with every one of his people. It's like the presence of Christ is with all of his people, no matter where they are throughout the world. Constantly teaching us. Constantly leading us. This is an advantage to them. So, first point, right? He will teach them the gospel. What they don't understand Jesus will help to make clear, and, and, and any questions that they have in the future after the ascension or any of that, the Holy Spirit will continue to teach them, continue to lead them and teach them. I think this was comforting to them, even though they're still wondering why they're going to be hated. Number two, the Holy Spirit will empower their witness. He's not going to just teach them. He's going to empower their witnessing. He's going to empower them as they go and bear fruit. In fact, they're not going to go. They might go, I guess, but they're not going to bear any fruit unless he's there with his power. We don't bear fruit on our own. The only fruit that we ever bear is through the active working of the Holy Spirit through us. People don't get saved because we preach the gospel. People get saved when we preach the gospel and the Holy Spirit applies it. He opens their minds and hearts to it. So he's going to empower their witness. We see this in verse 27. Jesus says, he's going to come and bear witness to you about me. He's going to teach you all that you need to know about me. And he says this, and you will bear witness. You will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The Holy Spirit would not be just their teacher. He would also be their source of power, right? Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when the Spirit comes upon you, you will go and be my witnesses throughout the world. You're not going to go one minute before that happens. In fact, if you do, nothing's going to happen. You've got to wait till you get the Spirit. You've got to wait till you get the power. He's the one that's going to empower your ministry. He's the one that's going to cause you to bear fruit. He's the one that's going to cause things to happen. And when He comes upon them on Pentecost, He will anoint them with divine power so that they can go and bear gospel fruit. And not only will he give them power, he will be in them, and he will be the source of power, and he will be the power that's working through them. It's not like the Holy Spirit gives them power and then leaves and goes back to his throne, goes back to his domain. He is the power who remains with them and who will be in them. That's what Jesus is saying. And this is precisely what we see play out in Acts chapter 2, right? Totally. The disciples are in the upper room once more. They had this upper room. I don't know if they were renting it out or whatever, but they used it all the time. They're up in the upper room with 108 other Christians, other believers, and suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it it filled the house where they were all sitting, right? They're all up there praying and hanging out, meditating, marinating, loving each other, caring for each other. Bam, man, it's like a, a tornado hits the building, right? They're all sitting there, and then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared, and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? This had, nothing like this had ever happened before. People had the Spirit, but the Spirit never remained on them. 
They're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what? They began to speak in tongues like gibberish. No, languages. They began to speak in languages. I love how the NLT puts it. The NLT, which most Bible preachers like me reject as a paraphrase, actually nails it. Every time I see tongues, I think of crazy charismania. Languages. They spoke languages. Intelligible languages. Not, not gibberish. As the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Here's the thing. There's a guy named Bill in the room, doesn't know a lick of Spanish, starts speaking Spanish. Say, habla espanol, huh? Never spoke a lick of it in his life. Now, it wasn't Spanish, it wasn't German, but the languages of that particular area, but you get what I'm saying. The Spirit comes upon them, gives each one the supernatural ability to speak an unfamiliar language. And the first thing this Holy Spirit group does is what? They're now speaking in languages that are unfamiliar to them. This must have been mind-blowing. They walk out the front door. They go down the stairs, walk out the front door. They enter the streets, and they begin to witness for Christ, for Jesus. They begin to share the gospel in those languages. To what? To who? To devout Jews from every nation. The entire nation, we would say the entire world at that time, descended upon Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. You've got all of these foreign people there. And this 120 comes down, and they're speaking all of their languages, Scythian, all these languages. It must have been a sight. And, and many of the foreigners there were just marveling. These people are from Galilee. They don't, they don't speak German. Why is that guy speaking German? Why is that guy speaking my language? They were marveling while others were saying, eh, I don't know, something's fishy. You know, there's always skeptics, right? They said, they're just drunk, that's all. They've been drinking all night, partying all night. They've been out on Crawford Road. They've been out on the canal bank, hitting the sauce. This is what they say. And when Peter hears the scoffers, he steps forward and totally rebukes them. He says, listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, exclamation point, make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. It's nine in the clock. It's nine o'clock in the morning. It's too early for that. This is what he says. These people aren't drunk. They haven't been drinking. It's only 9 a.m. And then he does something incredible. He cites Joel 2:28 to 32, which is an Old Testament prophecy about this very moment. This very moment is the, is the fulfillment of that prophecy, which talks about people, the Holy Spirit coming upon them and them speaking these languages and these sorts of things. He, he cites this prophecy, applies it to this very moment, and then he proceeds to witness for Christ. He proclaims the gospel to masses of people that are there. And what happens? 3,000 men were saved and baptized that very day. That very day. You know, we, we have baptisms every year around Easter if the Lord provides that. And and it takes quite a bit to coordinate that. How did they baptize 3,000 men? That's just the men. It must have been such a sight. These, these men were saved because of the Spirit, not because of Peter, not because he had great you know, skill and preached a perfect sermon. Now, if you go back and read his sermon in Acts 2, it's pretty good. It's not a perfect sermon. I mean, it wasn't because of his eloquence or his skill or, or any of those things. I, it just, it's a sermon. He preached a sermon. We preach sermons week in and week out. It's a sermon. But it's not because of him. 
I, I don't, there's nothing in the text that would indicate that he even had any time to prepare. I don't think he walked up to a pulpit with a script and said, take your Bibles and turn over to Joel. This man has the Holy Spirit just moments earlier, the Holy Spirit comes into him in an unprecedented way, in a new way, in a new fresh way, with full power. And he steps out of that room, here scoffing, empowered by the Holy Spirit, he presents a sermon to them and calls them to repentance. Was it Peter's work? No, it was because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit worked through his preaching and through his message. And he quickened hearts and souls in that moment. And we see this pattern of, of Holy Spirit empowerment and, 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 and guys going out and preaching the gospel in the Spirit and all that, and we see this pattern, you know, people getting saved. We see this pattern, this Acts 2 pattern throughout the whole book of Acts. And not just with the apostles, mind you. We... we See, believers, just regular believers doing this. When, you know, Saul the persecutor rose up and attacked the church in, in Jerusalem, all of the, the believers, most of them, except for the apostles, I don't know what they were doing. I guess they were hanging out in the upper room. I don't know what they were doing, but they were, they were stashed out there hanging out, and, and most of the believers fled from Jerusalem and, and went all over into Samaria and up north, further north. They went all over the region all over the world at that time. And when they went, the Spirit was in them and empowered them. And guess what they did? They witnessed to Christ wherever they went. And men and women were saved and baptized. Chapter 8 of Acts, verses 4 through 13. You look at the example of Philip the deacon, who was one of those who ran for his life. And he goes into Samaria one of the most unlikely places to go. And he's filled with the Spirit, and his ministry is empowered by the Spirit, and he proclaims the gospel, and people are getting saved left and right. It's Holy Spirit-empowered ministry, empowered preaching. Again, without the Spirit, people are just hearing lectures. But when the Spirit is there, and there in His power, flexing His divine muscles, people get saved. People get healed. He is going to, he's telling them, look, you're going to go out and witness. And you know why? Because you're going to have the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to witness through you. He's going to empower you, and he is going to witness through you. He's going to teach you, and he's going to be your source of power and your guide in these things. That's what Jesus is saying. Again, I think he's seeking to comfort them because what he's about to tell them is just like insane. Because this is, he's going to get specific now about the persecution. Number three, the Holy Spirit will preserve their faith. Now we cross over into chapter 16. Bye-bye, chapter 15. Verse 1, the Holy Spirit will preserve their faith. 16, verse 1, I have said these things to keep you from falling away. Now, I think that we automatically assume that Jesus was referring to his warnings about hatred and persecution in the previous chapter and in the following verses. Like he shared that information with his disciples so they wouldn't become surprised and then fall away. I think we all assume that's what he meant here. I think it's a fair assumption because of the context, but I'm not at all convinced that that's what he meant. 
Why? Because surprises cannot cause true disciples to fall away. You find out you have cancer. That's going to hurt. You've got a journey ahead of you. That's heartbreaking. That's sad. That's tragic. That's difficult. That's a trial. But your faith doesn't jump out of you and run back to heaven. In fact, in that moment is where it starts to get stronger. You see, surprises, they can't, they, they can mess with you. They can mess with you. People hating on you, people persecuting, that can mess with you. Right? Those kinds of things can cause you to doubt. Those kinds of things can cause you to stumble. Those kinds of things can cause you to recoil in fear and even disconnect from your brothers and sisters for a little season there where you just kind of become despondent. They can mess with you. They can mess you up. But they cannot cause you to fall away. They cannot. Nothing can cause a true disciple to fall away from the faith and return to the world. It's impossible. What did Jesus the Good Shepherd say in John chapter 10, verses 28 through 30? I give my sheep eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them from my hand. No surprises, no principalities, no men, no disasters, no circumstances. He says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Number one, they can't get you out of my grip. Number two, the Father's grip is over my grip. They can't get you out of both of our grips. And he says this, I and the Father are one. When I hold you in my hand, little lamb, no one is going to get to you. No one. Oh, they'll mess with you. They'll, in, they'll cause affliction, they'll harm you, but they will not take the kingdom of God from you. They will not take eternal life from you. They will threaten your faith, but they will not destroy your faith. This is the truth. So I, I can't imagine that he's telling them about what's going to happen so they don't get surprised and fall away. Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. Nobody can destroy the faith but the one who grants it and authors it and perfects it, and that's not something that he would do. The minute that that happens, Jesus would become a sinner because he would be going against his own will. And Jesus is not a sinner and never will be. It's an impossibility. I don't think Jesus was trying to give them some forewarning so they wouldn't fall away. I mean, maybe. I don't know. I can't see it. I think he was still referring to the Holy Spirit and pointing to another facet of the Spirit's ministry. The Holy Spirit would not only be the disciples' teacher and empowerer, he would also be their preserver. He would be their preserver. He would be there to guard the... De- he is the deposit. He is the guardian of the deposit in which God put in us. He is is there to lead us and teach us and guide us and empower us, but he is also there to preserve and protect that which God began in us. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says that God establishes his people in Jesus and places the Holy Spirit in their hearts as a guarantee. And Ephesians 1.13 says that those who 
believe have been sealed with the Holy Spirit who preserves them until they acquire their heavenly inheritance. What does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit is our preserver. He is our seal. He is our guarantee. Not to mention the Holy Spirit also administers God's preserving grace, thus ensuring that the good work that God began in His people will come to fruition. Philippians 1.6 I'm confident that the, work, the good work that God began in you, He will bring to completion. Is what God says through that human author, Paul. How will God accomplish bringing that good work to completion? Through the preserver, through the one whom I have put in you. You get it? I hope it's clicking. This must have been comforting for the disciples here at this point to, to learn that, man, the Holy Spirit would be working to preserve their faith in the midst of terrible hatred and persecution. And that not only would he be preserving their faith, but that he would be actively working to guarantee and to bring them to the finish line. That's what he does as our preserver. It should be very comforting for us to learn that, that the Holy Spirit is always working to preserve our faith. Not our physical bodies, although he does at times, but he is always working to preserve that which has the most value and is of the utmost importance, and that is our eternal life, our soul, our spirit. That is what he preserves. That is what no persecutor can touch. But they can inflict all sorts of damage on your physical body. They can behead you. They can lay your back open with whips. They can do a lot of things to you. They can burn you at the stake. But they can't get to that which is of the most importance, the very thing that, that you live forever through. I think it's very comforting to us to learn that the Holy Spirit is always working to preserve our faith through every trial, through every tribulation, through, through all persecution. And it's not just a matter of preservation, it's a matter of maturation. When it starts to click for you and you start, instead of just asking why I'm always going through a bunch of junk and garbage and difficulty, start saying to yourself, because this is what the Spirit does, He's going to preserve your faith, but just start asking the question, what can I learn through this? How can this sanctify me? Because God wastes nothing. So it's not a matter of just preserving, it's a matter of bringing us to maturity. I'll tell you, we've been sold a lie. The American gospel, American evangelicalism, what an absolute joke, this pain-free living that is offered in Christ and prosperity. What a, what a, a terrible bill of non-goods. We will never, ever become like Jesus without affliction. He suffered. Therefore, we must suffer. And to suffer is to be like him. To be persecuted is to be like him. You're never going to get there, Brenda, unless you suffer. And you suffer well, sister. You're not going to get there, Bruce, without suffering. If I had a mirror, I'd preach it to myself. You're not getting there, Dennis, without affliction. 
those stripes, that affliction you experience, the Spirit will preserve your faith and bring you to maturity through that. He uses these things for us. Brandon, any of you who've been through anything, you know how he uses those things. And you come out of it, maybe your body never comes out of it, but you come out of it in your spirit, lifted. A different saint than you were before you went through that cancer. Or while you're in the midst of that cancer, whatever it is, it should be very comforting for us to learn that, that the Holy Spirit as our preserver will also bring us safely to the finish line. We will make it. You don't think you're going to make it because of your circumstances, but guess what? If you're in Christ, it's impossible for you not to make it. You will make it. You're going to make it, B. Tom, you're going to make it. You'll make it, Brian, Mike. I don't know about Cameron. <laughs> he'll, be, he'll be like, ah, and I'll just give him a push. Ah. No, he'll make it. He'll, ma he'll make it before me. I'll be looking for him in heaven. I'll be in the back. He'll be up in the front. Like I knew he had a trick. You're going to make it, Lily. We will make it. We will make it to the finish line. Because we're good? <laughs> if it's based on me, I ain't making it. If it's based on you, you ain't making it. No, we'll make it because God is good. Because God has promised. Because God has set His seal on us with the Holy Spirit. Because God has put His, His power and His, His preserver in us. Just, just add in the fact that Jesus, as our great high priest, who is right now at this very moment seated at the right hand of the Father, ever pleading for us. He is advocating for us right now. He is preserving us as well from heaven while the Spirit preserves, preserves us from here, right here inside us. It's, it's a spectacular thing that is, is playing out. We should be in, incredibly encouraged by this reality. This promise, however, is the Holy Spirit in us and preserving and bringing us to the finish line in these things. It, it can, I think, sometimes generate just a little, little bit of um, little sense of fatalism. Well, if he's doing all that for me, then I don't have to do anything wrong. This promise does not negate our responsibility to, to participate regularly to pursue regularly the, 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 the basic general means of grace. We should, we should pray without ceasing. We should pray regularly. We should, we should read our Bibles. We should, we should study God's Word. We should hear God's Word proclaimed faithfully, right? Regularly. We need to be consistent in these things. We should partake of communion regularly. That's a means of grace. And if we have not been baptized as believers, we should get baptized. That's a means of grace. We, have, we don't preserve ourselves, but we engage in things that bolster and build our assurance. The means of grace. That's our part. He'll take us from point A to point B to the finish line. 
but we must engage in those things as we travel, as we run the race of faith. Okay? Number four, here's where it gets crazy because he's been bolstering and building them up and saying, look at all these great things the Spirit's going to do. This next thing is a great thing the Spirit's going to do, but it's going to come through a lot of affliction. Number four, the Holy Spirit will remind them of Jesus' warnings. This is where this plays into it here. Uh, Chapter 16, verses 2 through 4. And listen to this. He says, he's going back to persecution now. They will put you out of synagogues, out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Verse 4, but I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So, so I love how the promises of Christ here precede the persecution before he starts bringing that up or getting specific about it. He builds them up and bolsters their faith and helps them understand the Spirit's going to take you through these things. Now he gives a list of what's going to happen. Back in chapter 15, verses 18 to 20, Jesus told his disciples that when they go out and bear fruit, right when they take the gospel to the nations, they will encounter hatred and persecution, but he gave absolutely no specifics. He generalized it. They're going to hate you, know that they hated me. They're going to persecute you just as they persecuted me. That's all he says. And I'm sure that was very alarming, and they were already sad that Jesus was leaving because they didn't understand why he had to leave. They were messed up. He's been encouraging them now, and now he drops this nuke on them. He gets specific right here, right? He tells them the forms of persecution they will encounter. In verse 2, he gets specific. First thing he says is they will put you out of the synagogues. Well, who cares, right? They get kicked out of Jewish churches. I'm not a Jew anymore. I'm a Christian. Well, what, 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 what? Did you not realize that they, Christians used synagogues? They shared synagogues with Jews at the time. They didn't have a place to preach from here. They used Solomon's portico for a season. But, but that's, that's not even it. It's not about, well, they're going to kick you out of the synagogue, so you're not going to have a place in a pulpit. No, it's not about that. This is excommunication. Or John Wick, excommunicato. If you've seen those movies. Excommunication was... was Next to death, the most lethal punishment you could put upon a Jew in that day. It it was social genocide. You were now viewed as a leper without leprosy. You lost everything. When 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 you were kicked out of the synagogue, when you were ostracized from Judaism, you lost your social standing, you lost your career, you lost everything. Many people lost their families. You became an outcast. Your name, a term of derision. You were a person of scorn, and your entire family was scorned. And even after you died, your family still paid the price, or whoever you were connected to. That reputation didn't leave you even after you were put in a tomb. This is a a, a horrible punishment, a horrible persecution. Prisoners were treated better than excommunicants. Pink wrote, to be put out of the synagogue was more than simply to be excluded from the place of public worship. 
It cut a man off from the privileges of his own people and from the society of his former associates. It was a sort of moral outlawry. To be under this ban was almost more than flesh and blood could bear. All men shunned him on whom such a mark was set. This is one of those deals where where you're in the midst of this persecution and, and, and you're saying death would be better than this. And I, I, I love how clear Jesus is. He doesn't say they might put you out of the synagogues because of me. They could put you out of the synagogues because of me. Be mindful that could happen. And you know what that means, men. You just became lepers without leprosy. That's not at all what he says. He omnisciently declared, they will put you out of the synagogue. Being put out of the synagogue was not a possibility. It was guaranteed. They would be excommunicated, excommunicato. But this is not the only form of persecution they will experience, they will encounter, is it? No. Jesus also omnisciently declared, when whoever kills you, when it happens, they, not they could kill you, they might kill you, when whoever comes to kill you. <laughs> what does this mean? It means the disciples would be killed for their faith. They would be martyred. They would be murdered. What do you do if you're in the shoes, I should say sandals, of one of these men at this point? Everything's been going, what? I'm going to become a, I can't go to the mall? No, they'll be pointing at you at the mall and making fun of you and using your name as a curse word. Okay, that's really bad. Your family's going to be, scorned and, and mistreated. It's, it's going to be ugly. Okay, that, 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 man, following you, we're going to pay a pretty good price. And by the way, you'll die. Oh, okay, that's, yeah, it's a little too far. I'm out. I mean, if there were ever a moment for these disciples to be surprised and run, this was it. Well, this is heavy. I mean, church history tells us that, that all but one of these men suffered martyrdom. All but one. John evaded it, but I think being incarcerated on a Roman prison island most of your life is death probably would have been better. John was exiled to the Roman prison island called Patmos. It was the Alcatraz of the Aegean Sea, but much larger. It was during this time that God inspired him to write the book of Revelation, not Revelations. <laughs> You ever, if they say that, right? Take your Bibles and turn to Revelations. It's Revelation. It's not plural. Right? Drives a friend in here that's here today with us crazy. And I know he's thinking about it right now. And some say that they speculate and say that John died of old age while on Patmos. Others say that he left Patmos when he could no longer work in the mines. And he returned to Ephesus where he was a pastor for a season, where he died a few years later. I don't know how it played out. And I know that Jesus actually prophesied that John would not be martyred like the rest of the disciples. Did you know that? Here he tells them you're all going to die. 
But not really, that's not really what he says, when they come to kill you. He's implying that they'll all die, but over in John chapter 21, verse 20 through 23, he says, yeah, Peter, you're going to die, but not John. Well, why not John? That's not for you to ask. But like I said, being imprisoned, I don't, what's worse? Jesus also tells them that the people who are going to kill them, right, when they come and kill you, he tells them that they will think while they're doing that, that that's an actual service to God. We're doing the will of God by killing these guys. And you go back and read church history, you see some of them were speared. Well, that sounds like the will of the Lord. I think it was Thomas who was run through, or Philip, one of them. One of them was burned alive. Now, they're going to think that they're serving God by persecuting these men and by killing these men. It's going to be an offering to the Lord. We're offering service by getting rid of the apostates, by getting rid of the, the heretics. God is pleased with what we're doing. This is going to be the mindset. This is what's going to be leading them and guiding them as they persecute these men. But Jesus says, not they're going to think they're doing it, but that's not at all. They're not serving God. It just tells us that these men are going to be religious and very zealous, but Jesus says, quite frankly, here's the truth. They don't know the Father and they don't know me. He says it right there. They think they're serving God. They're not because they don't know the Father and they don't know me. And the truth of the matter is, if they knew the Father, they would know the Son and honor those whom the Son sent as his ambassadors, these disciples. <laughs> that's the way it works. There's no way to know the Father without knowing the Son. And when you know the Father and you know the Son, you know that His true disciples that are sent, you, you respond to them rightly. You don't kill them. <laughs> but can you imagine now how re-terrified these men were after they hear that they're going to become social outcasts, kicked out of the synagogues and, and lose their social standing and, and even suffer the penalty of death? The Lord basically told him, you're going to be excommunicated and then killed. <laughs> and in verse 4, Jesus gives the reason why he informed them of these terrible things. When, they be, when these things begin to unfold, when these, they're facing death, it's imminent, they're going to be killed. The Holy Spirit will call to their memories the warnings Jesus gave them on this very night while they were walking to Gethsemane. Pretty much every other warning he gave to them about persecution and death and these things. And in those moments when they're facing the sword or the executioner block or whatever, they will realize, because the Holy Spirit calls to their memory what Jesus said, they will realize that Jesus' prediction about them was true, and this will bolster their belief in Him as the Son of God. And what will that do? That will propel them in these moments to face their executioners with hearts full of faith, hope, and love. If there were ever a time when we would need to remember Jesus' warnings and promises, it will would be or will be when the sword falls. That way, we don't respond to our executioners in a way that doesn't bring God glory. 
We're called to suffer well and to bring Him glory, even if the sword should fall. And I tell you, in these moments, the Holy Spirit is going to call to their memory these warnings, these things, and that's going to, oh man, He was right. He told us about this. He is omniscient. He is God. We knew that, but man, it's, 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 it's metastasized in such a way now as to never before. Go ahead and drop the guillotine. In a similar way, the Holy Spirit will often call to our memories biblical warnings and promises when we are in the midst of tribulation in order to strengthen our faith, to bolster our belief in Christ. When I'm dealing with general difficulty, which is about every 17 minutes, I like to go to John 16, 33. And Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I have defeated it. That brings me comfort. It alerts me to the fact that Jesus said, I'm going to have trouble. Now I'm experiencing trouble. He was right. And I'm soothed and comforted by the fact that he's overcome the world. That what I'm experiencing is nothing more than a light and momentary affliction. And that I have for me an eternal weight of glory. Just on, just yonder on the horizon. When I'm dealing with health issues, I like to go to 2 Corinthians 5.1. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, that's our bodies, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. While you're in the middle of the night and you can't sleep because you're hurting or sick and you go back and reflect on that verse and peace. Peace. When I'm dealing with persecution, I like to go to Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Jesus said, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Oh. Do you see the negative and positive there? When they revile, when they persecute, and then the positive, take heart, rejoice, your reward in heaven is great. That's the boost that you need to endure that moment of affliction and persecution. Lastly, at the end of verse 4, Jesus gave his disciples the reason why he waited until this moment to tell them about the terrible persecution they will encounter. <laughs> he said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So it's a matter of timing while with them, Jesus had been their protector. I mean, he had suffered all the blasts and punches and things from the world, all the persecution and affliction. He, he endured it all while... I mean, do you recall the disciples being persecuted at all during his ministry? No, you don't. Why? Because Jesus absorbed all of it. He took it. He was their protector. He shielded them. And therefore, it was unnecessary to warn them about their future persecution. But now that his exit is imminent, only a few hours away, he knew that his disciples would be left to face 
the full fury of the world's wrath and hatred. The timing was now right to tell them about what they're going to experience. And the timing was right as well to give them all those promises we looked at in John 14 and even the promises here in, in 15 and in 16 and the high priestly prayer, which is just some of the best stuff I've ever read in my life. This was the moment to tell them what they're going to experience because I'm not going to be there to absorb it anymore for you. My stripes are going to be your stripes. They're going to come after you like they came after me. But I'm sending the helper to you. Have no fear. Have no fear. Closing. Just a question for you because we've been talking about witnessing and persecution and these things over the course of a couple of weeks. What is preventing us from witnessing for Jesus? What is preventing us from, from going and witnessing, whether it be in our own homes or in our neighborhoods, wherever it is that we're at our workplaces, maybe we go abroad. What, what is preventing us from witnessing to Jesus? I say this because I know it happens. I know it happens in my own life. I'm not always on mission. And I know you're not either. Sometimes, we, you know, we just love the Lord like crazy, but we're just wrapped up. We're enraptured with our own lives and our own things. But what is preventing us from witnessing to Jesus more consistently, more regularly? What? Is it lack of knowledge? This is something that happens, right? You, you feel like, well, I don't know a whole lot about the, about the Word and these things. I'm kind of new or whatever to this, or I was involved in a church that really didn't teach the Bible. So, so I, don't, I, can't, I, I, I don't think I have enough knowledge to go out there and, and to do that and to start talking with others about Jesus, to witness for Him, right? This happens, but do we not understand that, 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 that all we need to have to be able to do this is just a, a very basic understanding of the gospel? You don't have to have a degree. You don't have to be a pastor. You know, a lot of congregants will say that. Well, that's, that's what my pastor does. He, he goes out and witnesses. And I, I tithe so he can do it. I'd rather you stop tithing and go out and witness. Don't pay me to do your job. Well, I just don't know enough. Well, every believer, every believer ought to be able to articulate the gospel in a single simple paragraph. We are all sinners by nature and choice. God hates sin and punishes sinners with eternal torment. Jesus came to save sinners through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. If we repent of our unbelief and trust in his person and work alone, we shall be saved. How hard is that to remember? The Holy Spirit can can teach us what to say when we lack insight, especially during persecution. Matthew 12, 12, do not worry about what you will say when you face your persecutors. The Holy Spirit will give you the words. And guess what? We can also very simply say to someone, if we're witnessing to them or whatever, we're out there, we're doing it. Great, wonderful, awesome. We don't have an answer to a question. Don't make something up. I'll get back to you. And then do the research. It's real simple. Is it lack of knowledge? Is it lack of power? 
Well, I just don't really have the strength or the, the kind of, you know, I, I lack that to get out there, the gumption. I lack the power to kind of get out there and do it. You know, we're, we're post-Pentecost disciples. We have the Holy Spirit. We have his power, man. We might not have formal training or much experience when it comes to witnessing for Jesus. While both can be helpful, neither is required. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers our witnessing and works through our witnessing. It's not you anyways. You don't have to have power to witness. You need to rely on the Holy Spirit's power. Because if you try to witness in your power, you're just going to mess things up. And the Holy Spirit will give us what we need to witness for Jesus if we will simply pray, trust, and go. And he will work through our witnessing to either harden hearts or soften hearts. He might even bring an unbeliever to life, repentance, and faith. I've seen him do it. Is it lack of power? Is it lack of knowledge? Is it fear? What can man do to us? Hate us? Big deal. He hated Jesus first. Persecute us? Suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus is a high privilege and badge of honor. Men cannot cause us to fall away from the faith no matter what they do to us. They are not more powerful than the Holy Spirit who preserves our faith at all times, especially during persecution. They are not more powerful than our great high priest who is at the right hand of God, always interceding for us. We shouldn't fear men. We shouldn't fear those who can kill the body. We should fear the one who can kill the body and soul in hell. And that's God. He's the only one worthy of our fear. We ought not fear men and what they can do. And if we witness for Jesus and suffer for doing so, I believe part of this text applies to us, that the Holy Spirit will in those moments graciously, graciously, mercifully call to our memories biblical warnings and promises such as Matthew 5, 11 to 12, and thus bolster our faith our belief in Jesus as the Son of God. Why? So that we can face our persecutors with hearts full of faith, full of hope, full of love. Amen? Amen.